0: Us, it's Zach Langley-Chichi. I am so popular. Recently, we've been discussing all sorts of things, only for patrons, including Kawabata Yasunari's The Sound of the Mountain. If you want to join our book club and talk about Brave New World with us next month, you got to pay five bucks. And if you do, you'll also hear my most recent episode about Bret Easton Ellis's Less Than Zero and Andrew Halloran's most recent novel, The Kingdom of Sand. But today, we are talking about My favorite philosopher, Michel Foucault, and his work Discipline and Punish, The Birth of the Prison, and a Japanese dramatic TV show, The Queen's Classroom. I'm joined by a great friend of mine. Who are you?
1: Hi, I I guess I go by Bayou.
0: (laughs) Hey Bayou, what are you doing?
1: I am sitting here having a cup of coffee.
0: (laughs) Cute. And why do you follow me?
1: We met through a group chat many years ago at this point. And obviously as soon as I saw Drag Queen in Japan, I hit the the follow button. So
0: <laughs> you hit the slay button. Yeah. Yes, it's so funny how much time has passed. I, I remember know. when the group chat was created, which I think you have been in since its first um its first rendition.
1: Yes, I have. And honestly like I like I don't know how to explain this exactly but like to me like the Twitter world like goes by so much quicker than the real world. And so like it wasn't until like right now that I really just stopped and thought about like the actually 2 years or so, 2 or 3 years have passed. Like that's crazy.
0: <laughs> it is crazy. And it's so wild uh, how many iterations it's been through. But you and me are the gay survivors in the gay group chat. <laughs> can't can't stop us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think you are just such a fabulous little intellectual. Aww. I have <laughs> loved your conversations on TPN as well as uh, with I'm So Popular superstar Vera, and I think oh, you, you really listened had... to that. I did. You oh. did a great conversation <laughs> about like architecture. I thought it was such a, a unique spin on things. It was really genius. So I, I hope uh you do more and everyone should check it out.
1: Yes. I am planning on trying to do more this summer with that. But it's on it's on a little bit of a break for now. But I'm so glad you listened to that. That makes me so happy. Yeah, it
0: was fabulous. It was really refreshing and um also I just I could listen to Vera speak... I know. Like, ...about <laughs> anything.
1: <laughs> I know. That's exactly how I, I felt.
0: <laughs> I, like, low-key idolize her. I think she's such a superstar genius. I really am obsessed with her, and uh, you got a, a great performance out of her in your little conversation, so...
1: Well, so did you. Your episode with her was is one of my favorites, so...
0: He, oh, thank you very much. I love that episode, too, and uh, Bruce Weber continues... Um, you know, I never get the credit I want, but I was very glad we talked about Bruce Weber like almost a whole year before this like, Abercrombie discourse has been popping up again I recently. Know.
1: <sighs> it's so well, easy I... to just like, that's one of those things I was talking about where it's just like, I I really liked Abercrombie and I was on the Abercrombie train, but now that everyone else is on it, I can't be on it anymore. <laughs>
0: Yeah, now that everyone is, like, doing obnoxious, is it gay discourse about it, I can't uh, be bothered when the answer is so much loftier and impossible to describe in human words than just, is it gay or not? So true. It's so depressing how much fabulous art gets compressed into matters yeah. of political debates from obnoxious right-wing internet personalities it makes everything seem so flat and cardboard
1: exactly and it's like it's so easy like to see things like that and then just brush off whatever they're talking about as not worthy of even being discussed but then it's like there's sometimes you know the discourse is about something that's actually good but it's just been talked about and just removed of its essence to the point where it just seems like meaningless garbage
0: yeah, I think my current thing I'm raging against is self-memification. I can really detect that people um, on these esoteric like internet communities, which it is obnoxious to talk about them ad nauseum, but I will say like, this is where all... Jack was just talking about this on uh, his uh, really great episode about Atlas Shrugged, but it's like... The entire news cycle and popular media is adapted from Twitter, basically, so yeah. when I am analyzing it, it's because it has uh, immediate effects. But yeah, th- this memification is basically everyone characterizing themselves in a ironic, detached, and mildly humorous way where they become a broken record about two or three silly little picture book qualities they have about themselves. Mm-hmm. And then they run it into the ground and ruin any, like, serious comment or um, human, like, interesting drive they may have uh, by turning thems- themselves into a literal, like, little joke.
1: Honestly, like, I haven't really been posting much lately. And I feel like a lot of it is just, like, because it's so hard to, like, figure out a way to avoid doing that, honestly.
0: It is because hard. Because that's what gets I mean, attention. Yeah, I do it. I know. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what gets you attention, and especially when you're competing for the very small pool of attention that exists for uh art podcasts or whatever, <laughs> like yeah, it's difficult to resist the urge to turn yourself into a meme. And then yeah. whenever I like am about to post something, I like read it back now. I'm like, did I write this or did like my meme shadow self write this?
1: Yeah. That's so true, honestly.
0: What are you going to do? I mean, being a drag queen, like, the whole thing is, like, I produce my personality and, like, make a big yeah shtick about it. So that's all right, but that's, like, an art, you know? That's uh, that's my art form. But posting is, is not an art for me, and I would like to stop doing it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's honestly why um, I, I tried to start a podcast in the first place is because it was, like, there were all these ideas in my head, and it was, like, no one would ever have paid attention to it if it was a Twitter post, you know?
0: Yeah, and no one wants to read anything serious on Twitter. Like, yeah. anything I actually care about or is like, interesting is, like, the stuff that, like, no one gives a fuck about. But as soon as yeah. I just make, like, some basic take about liberalism or whatever, then, you know, yep. everyone wants to hoot and holler about that. Yeah. And I gotta tell you, I don't give a fuck. I do not care at all about politics. I don't care about wokeness. I don't care about anything like that. Um... All of the answers to everything bad that has happened in the last three, four, five, ten years of culture uh, has already been explicated by Foucault in the (laughs) 70s. No one needs anything else. The answers are here.
1: Mm -hmm. And if it's not in Foucault, it's in Queen's Classroom
0: though. So. Exactly! The, you just have to look at like these fucking pieces of art, and then the entire thing is there, and it doesn't need any more comment, because people who are more talented and interesting than you have already resolved the problem. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Foucault and Discipline and Punish. Um, I am on a major Foucault kick right now, and I'm beginning to feel a little bit like a tyrant in his defense, because... Mm-hmm. Even after I did my episodes about history of sexuality almost, like, two years ago now, um, that was, you know, before, like, the revived, like, cancellation of him, but he is probably the most mischaracterized philosopher and thinker of the last hundred years, and it is so frustrating to me that no matter what people know, it always circles back into this terrible loop of people attributing him as a postmodernist who believes that words have no meaning and the entire world can be redefined with language, which is not something he thinks. No. Um he gets grouped in with like leftist uh gloop. He literally was like deeply anti-communist. He complained endlessly about how homophobic and anti-Semitic the communist <laughs> communities were and was like an a, like a radical anti-communist by the end of his life. Wow. Foucault is a beautiful human being who squeezed life for all it's worth and I will not take any more slander against him.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just like, I, I had never read a full Foucault book before reading this and it was like, it was just so weird how every single thing I'd ever heard about him is not, it's not just like wrong, it's just like not even remotely correct. It has, like, nothing to do with his work at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I feel like is the sign of a great writer, because it's, like, you know, like what Jax talked about with Ayn Rand. It's, like, the criticisms of her have nothing to do with the reality of Ayn Rand. And it's exactly Exactly. like that with Foucault.
0: What was kind of your impression of Foucault before completing your first total work by
1: him? I mean, I, I very much kind of... I mean, so much of it was just like the generic kind of right-wing takes on Foucault, where it was like, you know, like you said, that he was a postmodernist, that he was a communist, and that his work was just basically just complete bullshit that had no nothing really to say. Mm-hmm. It's
0: definitely like the leading thought about him, and yeah. I've harped on this before, but part of that is due to our girl Polly, who of course we yeah. all love, but she has the most wrong fucking yeah, idea about him that is so so frustrating.
1: <laughs> and I love Talia and I feel like she's right about like almost everything. So when she said that about Foucault, I just was it was so easy for me to just assume that she was right. But it just goes to show that, you know, not everyone's right.
0: <laughs> and the thing is is that she, the way that she kind of stationed herself against Foucault is because yeah. she grouped him in with the post-structuralists um, yeah. who, honestly, they are annoying. Like, that movement is ludicrous. Yeah. But she, I just can't believe that she never, like, I really don't think she ever read the history of sexuality because it's, like, um, a version of sexual persona and it's, like, radical um, honesty about how deeply entrenched, like, sexual images and archetypes are that it feels like a precursor to sexual personae and half of me just wants to believe that she is putting on a little show and pony horse and pony show um just so she can like uh, have like a, another like person to you know be antagonistic towards but in fact i feel like she actually might like him and is just lying i i'm
1: wondering if it's like cuz she started that book in the 60s didn't she i guess so so, I'm wondering if she was just mad that Foucault got to it before she did.
0: Maybe she was just salty. <laughs> well, gay men and lesbian women always have a little bit of academic animosity between them as well. That's very so. true. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I really find it so obnoxious um, that honestly, no one has actually read any Foucault. No, if they say that you they can have, tell, they're lying. You can
1: tell. Like, it's not even close.
0: Really, and it's like, if they have, what they've read is they've read the Panopticon um, segment from Discipline and Punish, and that's it. That's it. That's all. So they think that they get to have this big, self-important opinion about the meaning of his work, they think they get to mischaracterize him, and they think that they can present this like flatulently wrong idea about him, just because they think that's the trendy thing to do. And I'm here to tell you that Foucault is a genius and also a model of I'm so popular living. He um, basically spent his entire life. Uh, he he was very um, kind of like Hikimomori in his youth and was very like withdrawn and angsty. He spent his youth like reading. He um, decorated his dorm room that he lived in during university with torturous images from the the Napoleonic Wars and, like, ancient, Mm. like, torture rituals, which I (laughs) love. He used to chase his classmates around with a dagger. He um, went into a classroom and cut himself open with a razor. He had a really intense uh, sadomasochistic relationship with his uh, long-term boyfriend. He was um, having the most sex of probably any popular thinker in history in (laughs) San Francisco in the 80s and he was doing these LSD trips in Death Valley that made him reconsider everything he's ever said I really love his lust for life, his appreciation of beauty and I feel like you can tell reading his work just how much he loves the world
1: it's so true it's just like this whole idea of Foucault as being someone that just doesn't care about anything and is just like believes that words are meaningless or whatever. It just, none of it makes any sense because every single sentence in his work is just shining with like this passion for the world and this passion Mm -hmm. for love and for life and for everything that is important to humanity.
0: Where on earth do you think this idea comes from that Foucault is this indifferent, like apathetic postmodern force like i'm sure it must come from some like popularly attributed quote from a minor work or something because like if you spend even 10 minutes reading him you see that he's like blistering with life
1: yeah i i just have to come from yeah i don't i i'm wondering if there was some biography about him or something that became more popular than anything by him i i don't know it's really weird it's not even close like it's just completely unrelated to anything he actually has to say
0: for real. But we're here to set the record straight, and I really wanted to talk about Discipline and Punish, the birth of the prison, because I, of course, while I was in college, I used to work myself in a uh, prison uh, teaching English um, as uh, like a college course for incarcerated students, and my first time when I was in- involved in that program, we actually read the Panopticon piece of... Wow. Uh, this book uh, with the inmates. And it was a really moving experience and always um, gave me like, uh, like a belief that Foucault is uh, right about things like Mm -hmm. incoherently. Uh, But this was your first work. What was kind of your big general first impression of the
1: text? To me, it's sort of as like, it's not even really like academic work necessarily. It's sort of as like Foucault just decided to use like the like, ac- like, academic writing as sort of like a basis for a body of art. It was like something I've never read before. And I see why it was so like shocking to people when, he- when they first read it, because it's like he has all these citations and everything. And he makes sure to back up everything he has to say. But the way he writes everything, it's just so beautifully done. But it's just, it's really something else. It's a complete, it's a completely unique, like, way to write a text.
0: Absolutely. It is art. It is philosophy second, art first. And what's so special about his books is that because I feel like he experiences license as, like, a truly artistic spirit, he doesn't feel the need to contextualize endlessly or to Mm -hmm. provide evidence. He writes with these beautiful enormous strokes of mass history yeah. um without having to like um defend himself from it he just believes in the way he sees the world and uses that as a launching pad to poetically muse on the nature of things and it is really gorgeous and and you read it in French yeah. what was his like literary voice like to you
1: I mean it's very it was uh, how do i explain it That's such a good question. I guess it's just, hmm. to me, it's sort of like, he's just speaking straight from his like soul, you know, is how it comes off. It's just him saying everything. It's not, it's not like he run has like run on sentences or anything, but it's sort of, is just like every single thing he has to say, just feels so passionate and it just doesn't really come off like I said, as an academic text, it's sort of is just like he's saying every single thing that he wants to say from the soul, and he's expunging his soul into into word.
0: Absolutely. And he also gets misattributed with um, other highfalutin philosophers who do write in that obnoxious, bleeding, academic, yeah. non-sequitur speak. But he doesn't write that way no, at all. at
1: all. It's extremely easy to understand. I've, I mean, I've read much harder French books. I was actually a little worried when I first started. I was like, am I not going to even be able to understand this? But then like, within a day, I was like, no, I can just read this whole book in French. It's not even that difficult of a read. And this idea that it's some mess, you know, of academic gobbledygook, it just doesn't really make any sense.
0: I don't have any fucking idea what people are saying. People just talk out of their goddamn assholes. Like, <laughs> this is not what you think it is. It's it not, is not.
1: It's not even close.
0: I think people, like, just think that it's, like, caught or something. And it's not mm-hmm. that. It's, like, this huge survey of the entire, like, rush of history through specific conventions of things that have happened, mm-hmm. um, like, in terms of, uh, like... Uh, History of sexuality, obviously, that's him um, approaching the makeup of the universe from a sexual point of view, and here in Discipline and Punish, it's about, um, like, the division of time and the systems of justice, but he isn't doing it in in some way where he's, like, explicating through, like, Marxist dialectics, like, no. the truth <laughs> of things. He just says shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's great.
1: Yeah, and it's like, I, I have no... I think people think too literally about his work, I'm assuming, where it's like everything I've heard about Foucault is that, oh, he said something, but he, it's not true. But it's like if you're picking apart all the facts, you're completely missing the entire point of what the book is even saying.
0: Exactly. You got it so right. I, could, I couldn't have it better myself. Um, so the general thesis of Discipline and Punish, this is a book that imagines the transversal from the sort of antiquated form of public torture and execution as a system of justice into what it's become today, which is the system of mass prisons. And maybe my most, like, libtarded take or whatever is that I do think prisons are fucked up. And yeah. having, like, spent um quite a bit of my... Uh, you know, my juvenilia, working with incarcerated people, I felt deep empathy for these uh, men who made mistakes that they mm-hmm. take they take um, responsibility for and they own up to it and then their entire lives is, like, reduced to a state of slavery until they mm-hmm. can leave. And these are people who have, you know, incredible moving thoughts about the world and deep emotional connections to it. And uh, I do think that the exploitation and torture of them as literal slaves in the American prison system is disgusting. I, and I do not care if I lose like right-wing points for that. It's like fucked up. And until you know anyone who's in prison, you won't ever realize that or until you read this fucking book.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because I mean, I had this interpretation of the book you might think something different, but like, Foucault kind of is in support of like medieval torture versus the modern prison. And he talks so much about how there's sort of like a religious, <clears throat> spiritual element to torture in the medieval era that has just been completely erased from the modern prison system. And it's like, it's just that, uh, how do I explain it? Just that the book the book talks so much about that that like what makes prison so horrible is not the fact necessarily that they're being punished it's that their punishment has no meaning behind it and that there's no real goal instilled in it that nothing is really accomplished through it and it's just meaningless torture
0: yeah that's exactly what i think too especially on the fact that you can kind of tell that Foucault has, like, a yearning to return to, like, public execution, which I love.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I love the layout of the book, too, because it's, like, if he had done it opposite, if he had flipped the book around, it wouldn't work anywhere like it does. But it's sort of as like, you have these beautiful, like, first couple chapters where he's talking about public execution in just this really, like, cinematic way. And it just really puts you into the headspace of what it would have been like to be in that environment. And you really just get an understanding of why that was even a thing that happened in the first place and why it was something that stuck around for so long. And then as mm-hmm. the book kind of goes on, it's just like you feel you, you're, you, you feel like your soul being sapped out of you as you're reading it. Like you just feel like you're closed in in like a prison.
0: Yes, absolutely. This is something that I think goes especially underappreciated in Foucault's work is his sense of like narrative tension building. Mm-hmm. He is writing a novel basically in the way that he like <clears throat> situates this book when it begins with this reflection on the um atrocities and extremities of these ancient executions and the eventual transformation of that ritual into the prison system. It does feel cinematic and widescreen, and it's really beautiful. Yeah. I'm looking up this quote now that kind of gives, like, a, a good sense of uh, what he's reaching for overall with the book. And uh, he writes, The public execution is now seen as a hearth in which violence bursts again into flame. Punishment, then, will tend to become the most hidden part of the penal process— this has several consequences. It leaves a domain of more or less everyday perception and enters that of abstract consciousness. Its effectiveness is seen as resulting from its inevitability, not from its visible intensity. It is the certainty of being punished and not the horrifying spectacle of public punishment that must discourage crime. And this points to, I think, one of the most transformative qualities of this book, which mm-hmm. is that in tracing this transformation of the execution and tortures of, like, kind of the medieval dark ages or whatever into the prison system, he actually discovers that this sort of emotional torture and justice has extended itself into every facet of our lives and has made prisoners and slaves out of the whole human world.
1: And he's completely right. (laughs) You can't ju- you can't read the book and right. think anything
0: out. No, you literally can't read this and think he's wrong because he just is merely right. And especially after what we've experienced in the last 10 years, uh-huh. this inflated sense of justice and constant surveillance and the systems in which that is propagated has become almost impossible to ignore if you have any, like, naked eye for what's going on around you. Mm-hmm.
1: There was a part in this book and it was, I texted you when I got to this part. And it was the part where I just was like, he's a genius. And it was when he started talking about the plague and how basically the plague was used as an excuse to sort of start the Panopticon up. And that you know everyone would be locked into their homes and that they would have to keep their window open and they would have inspections. And that he was basically talking about how it wasn't even necessary for the plague necessarily but it was a perfect excuse for expanding the prison system into basically every single home.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally. He it was so eerie and ominous when I got to the plague portion of the book and he like describes in that like luxurious ten pages in like this really excruciating detail all of the ways that power was exploited from this plague to Mm -hmm. socially imprison like the populace of this little town
1: the part that really got to me too was when he started talking about how there were stories during the plague of giant massive orgies of people and it was sort of like exactly like what happened with covid where there were all these stories of orgies happening and of people breaking the laws but in reality no one was actually doing it It was just these sort of like warning stories for other people.
0: Oh, yeah. And the people who were um, most accosted for uh, for that was gay men, because during the covid pandemic, what would happen is that there was this vengeful sense of justice that the heterosexual world was. And the unsexed gay one as well was desperate to inflict on homosexual men. So they took every possible story of gay guys going to Barbados to party or having yacht orgies or fucking and sucking when they were supposed to be quarantining. They blew these up into these um, heinous news stories. And if I recall correctly, there was like even a very popular Instagram account of you know some fucking civilian who was just cataloging and posting like Instagram stories of gay guys having fun and partying.
1: (laughs) And it's like, and
0: and, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) I was
1: just going to say, and that goes to like another thing that people get totally wrong about Foucault, which is, you know, the elephant in the room, which is that he died of AIDS, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, there's like this idea which is what I had for years of Foucault was that because he didn't believe in anything or whatever, that he didn't believe that AIDS was real or something. But it's like reading this book you understand exactly what he's thinking which is that it doesn't matter if the virus is real or not it's not something that should be used as an excuse for complete totalitarian lockdowns on society
0: exactly people don't want to admit this but the thing is is that sickness is ever present in our society it has been since the dawn of time. This is like the the crux of Larry Kramer's uh, thought in the American People series, and. We can't be using excuses to turn ourselves all into little police officers and justice upholders. And the fact that after COVID ended and I had to sit down and listen to all of these retarded right wing like Twitter people being like, "Uh, actually, gay guys were the ones who were enforcing COVIDian like paranoia the most. That is wrong. It's It's dead wrong.
1: (laughs) Not even right,
0: yeah. So, yeah, as I'm, like, working myself up into a tizzy about this, I just want to scream because it is so refreshing to read Discipline and Punish and just have Foucault right there explaining exactly what was going to happen to all of us. Exactly. You know, half a century before it would happen. Yeah. (sighs) God, okay. I had to like take a breath there. as was really <laughs> manic. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, and it was sort of like you talked about how in that part that it's sort of like there's always going to be something that's going to be used to strengthen control. There's never going to be an excuse that's not good enough, and so it's like you have to just let go of all the excuses. It doesn't matter how valid the excuses or whatever. Like it, like there's so many people when they talk about COVID that it's like. The problem with COVID to them is that the virus wasn't enough or something, you know, like it wasn't strong enough, but it's like Mm -hmm. what Foucault was saying is that like, it doesn't matter whether or not the virus is the most deadly virus in the world or if it's not like the fact is, is that they're still going to use it to strengthen regardless. So you should just tear down all the walls and just forget about all of the bullshit.
0: Yeah, and go fuck yourself to death and do acid in Death Valley, which is, like, literally, (laughs) like, that's, like, my tea. That's so real (laughs) for me. But it's so funny to me that people react to Foucault and they think that, you know, he's, like, this obnoxious... Um, chortling leftist who can do nothing but complain about systems of power. But Mm -hmm. the thing is is that the systems of power he's critiquing are exactly the ones that have led to this, like, woke leftist reign of terror. And I'm 100% sure he would criticize it the same as he would every other system that he does in this book.
1: Especially because so many of his positions that he takes in this book, I mean, they're not even really, they're not leftist, like, He's very reactionary for most of the book.
0: I agree. So he introduces this concept of the panopticon, which is probably like the most um, famous image from the book. And it is a really specific design of an observation tower in which those looking upon it um, are never certain if they're being truly observed or not. But because there is the infinite possibility they feel as if they are in a constant state of surveillance. Mm -hmm. And the reason that this is uh, brought up is because Foucault says that there used to be a uh, constant illegality in the world and that everyone, regardless of social class, had to participate in some degree of illegality in order to function in a joyous and uh, worthwhile way with their time on Earth. But as the theater of public execution and torture was diffused into the state of prison, the, uh, the The way that illegality was changed was that people of lower social classes and those who aren't in power or those who are frowned upon by the uh, most powerful or the common denominator, their realm of illegality was made smaller and this is due to a state of the panopticon, which isn't only brought up in the context of prison, but is brought up in the uh, form of discipline. I think I did an okay job explaining that, but basically everyone is like disciplining themselves and so chained into these superstructures that they have basically surrendered themselves into a social panopticon that is spread throughout culture.
1: Yeah, there's there's a good quote that I had saved it's in french and i'm just gonna google translate it um do it but it's in the workshop at school in the army there's a whole micro pin micro micro penalty of time delays absences interruptions of tasks of activity inattention negligence lack of zeal of the way of being impoliteness disobedience of speech chatter insolence even the body incorrect attitudes non-compliant gestures uncleanliness sexuality immodesty, and decency and he's basically saying that the world has sort of it's torn it's turned into a constant prison where everyone is surveilling each other and themselves over every single little minor detail in every single aspect of their life
0: oh, just for the sake of my own uh, interest can you read that in french
1: ya yeah. à l'atelier à l'école à l'armée sévit toute une micropénalité du temps retard absence interruption de tâche de l'activité inattention négligence manque de zèle de la manière d'être impolitesse désobéissance des discours bavardage insolence du corps attitude incorrecte gestes non conformes malpropreté de la sexualité Immodesty, essence. Ah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love it. I live. That is so fierce. Aww. But you're. <clears throat> that is exactly the the perfect quote to uh, like bring up in this whole conversation because what's so interesting is in the the docile bodies portion of uh, this book we are introduced to this history of like soldiers and mm-hmm. the division of time where time can never be wasted and we are put into a state of constant exercise of and bettering ourselves and doing it in this really bizarre and observed state of surveillance, not just by those in power, but by our peers and the very operation of the world around us. I, I love the way that he will look at like the physical makeup of a school or of a hospital or of a town. Mm-hmm. And you won't just see it as like flat concrete, but sees it as like these extensions of our consciousness that yeah. are, Oh, it's so beautiful to me. I, just, I, I, I loved <laughs>
1: when he started talking about how, how basically that before, you know, you would build a church at the center of the city in Europe, but that over time that he, he talks about how basically the center of the city became the hospital. And that you sort of see with that, the development of the hospital being turned into the, the main religious organization of power. And that you would have, like, the doctors would be like the bishops, and then the nurses are like the cleric, the cleric, you know. And it sort of is like the power is actually held in the doctors who have all the knowledge, and everyone believes that the doctors know everything, and that you're the, the commoner who has to listen to what the doctor tells you
0: because you couldn't possibly know better about any of this. Yeah. Um yeah, it's just incredible how prescient he is about everything and the book is like such an enormous like reading experience that like mm-hmm. it, it it does manage to like capture the whole gamut of of human society. Human
1: <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. It's really just beautiful just the way he's able to just take I mean, it feels like, once you read this book, you feel like you understand what it means to be a human. I mean, it's really that strong. It is that
0: strong. And he has this really beautiful penchant for um, the way he talks about bodies in space. And this is, like, another frowned upon, you know, thing that everyone always gets worked up about, about academia or whatever. But when he talks about, like, human flesh, he is, like, he even goes, like, into such piercing detail when he's, like, describing the regiment of discipline in, like, an army and in soldiers and how there's, like, 13 points to how to lift up one's rifle. And he talks mm-hmm. about exactly, like, how, like, the joints in the body, like, mm-hmm. works. And then when he's talking about, like, the, um you know, more... uh. High concept idea of these docile bodies of people who've been reduced to machinery and the uh, ritual of punishment, which was once meant to like stop the crime for good, is now just like a managing force of it. The mm-hmm. way that he envisions like human flesh chained up into that mass system, I find it horrifying.
1: Do you know the Grace Jones song, Slave to the Rhythm? Of course. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I just kept thinking about that over and over again with this part of the book. Basically, I mean, it's like the same idea of, like, the, you know, the transition of man into machine that's just a slave to whatever is being, you know, held against them. Mm -hmm. And just that grand scope and it it
0: kind of it's difficult to talk about like foucault in this way because like unless you spend like hours like picking through like the whole book you're never going to be able to like get like the gravitas of that out of yeah. your mouth because it does sound a little bit like milk toast and obvious it's like but the mm-hmm. way that he reveals the truth and how that system has been established is what makes it so magical yeah he writes the historical moment of the disciplines was the moment when an art of the human body was born which was directed not only at the growth of its skills not at the intensification of its sub, uh, of its subjection but at the formation of a relation that in the mechanism itself makes it more obedient as it becomes more useful and conversely discipline increases the forces of the body in economic terms of utility and diminishes these same forces in political terms of obedience. This has become the truest thing I've ever read in regards to how people will turn against their friends um, for a fake magical religion of wokeness and social justice mm-hmm. and sexlessness, and the entire world has been reduced to this state of bodies as mechanical units, and the machine that's holding it together is other people.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, I mean, that's the whole thing with the panopticon is that it's like, <laughs> it's, it's not just that there's the central panopticon, but at this point, everyone is their own panopticon for everybody else. And it's sort of is like, the system has moved past the point of needing guards, because everyone has become their own guard, because they don't know when or when or when they're not being watched.
0: Mhm. And everything must have function. There's no room for mirth and yeah. the the way that it's conducted I think is is much more horrifying than like some of like the pretty wild stuff that he talks about yeah. in like the medieval section because it is this Chthonian cosmic horror. Mm-hmm. The way that prisons are set up um and were originally set up is that like it's a complete mystery what's happening inside of them. Yeah, so, so you never know just how bleak things will get. It's just this sequence of black holes in our society that we dump people into so that they can become literal slaves and do menial jobs uh, for the government as well. And they're just uh, vanished into a terrifying vortex that is impossible to perceive because of the way it's been set up.
1: Yeah, I I really liked when Foucault was talking about medieval torture and sort of the transition that he was talking about how for most of human history, punishment has always been seen as, you know, basically karmic, that for whatever you did as a punishment, you would be punished back in a way that was understandable as being related to what you did as a crime. And it's sort of, he, when you get into modern prisons, it's like, The association between the crime and the punishment is just gone. There's no association to really be made. It's just... It's just arbitrary.
0: It's completely arbitrary. Yeah, the... I do also feel kind of his, like, horny lust for (laughs) uh, going back to these grandiose images. It makes sense to me that his dorm room was, like, plastered up with, like, torture (laughs) illustrations. And I feel like I want that, too. I feel like uh-huh. um, it, it makes so much more sense to me that instead of, like, using people as both outside of the prison as like literal wage slaves and agents of uh, wokeness and the tyranny of contemporary society, I also feel like, you know it would be so much better if instead of like punishing people through that system, if we did make like these like Christ like figures by Mm -hmm. strapping people to the wheel on the highway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And Foucault talks about how in the medieval era that or you know, it, it expands beyond that, but just like when torture was used, you know, public displays of torture were used for punishment, but there was this general sense that it was like the King was who was doing this and Everybody was against the king. And so there were, you know, there would be riots that would break out at these things in support of the criminal. And, you know, sometimes just by random acts of God, as he calls it, you know, you would be saved from the crime, you know, or from the from the punishment, you know, mm-hmm. like you would just magically survive the wheel somehow. And then by, you know, through that suffering, you be- you became something even greater. You became seen as like a person who was literally saved by God. But oh, then he talks about just... how now it's like, it's, there's nothing like that. It's, everyone is against everybody else. There's just the individual and it's every individual against each other. And it's not, there's no, there's no higher meaning to anything, especially when it comes yeah. to like being convicted of a crime.
0: Because we have no king um, that is our our enemy. We have no... Yeah, force there's no identifiable figure that is the source of this evil malaise that we're all mired in it is an anonymous heavenly body that Mm -hmm. is just floating through the universe and there's no way to act against it because we've all become the antagonist indefinitely there's a really good um, passage that I think sings well to this he writes a Why would society eliminate a life and a body that it could appropriate? It would be more useful to make him serve the state in a slavery that would be more or less extended according to the nature of his crime. France has all too many impracticable roads that impede trade. Thieves who also obstruct the free circulation of goods could be put to rebuilding the highways. Far more telling than death would be the example of a man who is even before one's eyes, whom has... Deprived of liberty and who is forced to spend the rest of his days repairing the loss that he has caused society. In the old system, the body of the condemned man became the king's property, on which the sovereign left his mark and brought down the effects of his power. Now he will be rather the property of society, the object of a collective and useful appropriation. Yep. <laughs> Terrifying. Like, scary. Mm-hmm.
1: There was a quote that i had that I, I wanted to share so he this was about like i guess the trans. i don't think the translation came out right exactly because it wasn't so much punishment i think so much is like what i'm going to say it's going to have punishment but i think he means more just like karmic punishment in a way mm-hmm. so i'll just i'll put that in so i'll just add karmic to it so it says it is not karmic punishment to deprive a citizen of the most pre- of their most precious possession, to plunge him ignominiously into the abode of crime, to snatch him from all that he has dear, to potentially lead him to ruin, and to deprive not only him but his family of all means of subsistence.
0: <sighs>
1: and he's oh, completely is
0: right. So He's so <laughs> right. Why can't people just read this book and see things for how they are? I guess maybe to some people this all feels like um, the kind of obvious, like, you know, I guess uh, if you're going to be like Katy Perry and like say we're all like a slave to the rhythm or something, you know, Mm -hmm. it it feels... But what makes it special is that he channels the overall gesture and motion of like society from Mm -hmm. these medieval torture rites to where we are now. And it becomes like this document that feels like you could turn it into a, the gold and platinum disc and send it into space. And like, this mm-hmm. would have like the true encapsulation of the human spirit.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's, it's just, uh, it's so hard to talk about because it's just so grand in scope. And he just does every single thing that you could ever really need to know about this topic. Absolutely. And then trying to boil it down, it kind of, comes off a little flat or cliche but it's like when you read the book itself it's just so much more than that
0: it's so much more and it was a really validating experience when i was thinking about this as i was smoking a cigarette inside of a cafe um with my coffee (laughs) reading this for the episode and i was just thinking about how like the panopticon is like so extended that like you can't even fucking smoke indoors in America anymore and read your French philosophy. Like, the world (laughs) is over. Like, it's nothing but eyes looking into one another, and we have to reject it and return to these, like, pageants of externalized theatrical horror so that we can make meaning of our crimes and our sins (sighs) instead of just being executioners and cops to one another all the time over stuff that's useless so that you can just serve like the democratic fucking party.
1: Oh, that's so true. (laughs) And it's one thing that I really liked is, um, Oh, let me see if I can find it. When, when Foucault was talking about medieval torture was how he was talking about how for the most part, the the criminals would confess on their own will Mm -hmm. in part because the whole system of of like detective work was hidden from everyone and so when they brought evidence against you you had no idea where it came from and so for the most part people would you know kind of willingly put themselves through the torture and they would feel that you know that sense that sense of catharsis at the end of it all you know that sense of of just just like artistic beauty in the act of of dying you know Mm -hmm. and that he talks about how now it's the exact opposite that most criminals don't really get any sense of meaning out of their punishment and they're sort of that not only that but that by forcing them to work for so long for no meaning that they start to do the exact opposite they start to start they start to justify their crimes more and that that was not something that you saw before but the prison system is just so non-functioning that it does the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be set out to do in the first place
0: absolutely you really said that so perfectly i i think that really gets at the heart of like why this is all so disturbing Mm -hmm. like there's no I have a really tense relationship with um, like individualism and mm-hmm. collectivism as concepts because obviously I subscribe to the Evangelion school of thought, which is you must divide yourself and be an independent entity and you must like suffer and experience like pain from others so that you can also have the capacity to feel ecstasy on Earth. But at the same time, I also feel like we do need like, kind of Foucault argues here, and people will often criticize him for, is, like, that collectivist sense of the shared human experience. Um, Mm -hmm. He, like, writes really beautifully, like, we are a product of, like, our genetics, of society, of our interactions with others, of, like, this discipline. And by reaching into a collective experience that's, like, shared by everyone, we can make something more grand and we can experience real beautiful guilt and like the full gamut of human emotion. But because Uh everything is so individuated, there's no way to tap into that eternal well of humanity that has just been so abstracted from us.
1: Something that I was thinking a lot about when I was reading this is like, even now that sense of karmic justice is still very strong in people especially in America, to such a degree that like, when someone's arrested for raping someone or molesting someone, people are like, oh, they're going to be raped in prison. And that's how they justify the prison sentence. It's not the prison sentence itself. It's that they'll receive a karmic punishment in prison that's not even necessarily impaled. And that's the way that a lot of people are able to justify it to themselves.
0: <sighs> oh, God. And it's like we what we could be doing is we could be like fucking putting, like, a a spiked wooden baseball bat <laughs> up their ass and, like, yeah. putting them in a cage in public. And, uh, you know, that would do the trick in comparison yeah. to just, like, sentencing them off. And yeah. even worse than, like, the prisons is just, like, the emotional incarceration that mm-hmm. exists within young people. This is so cancerous that it yeah. has infected people into their deepest recesses and even the most like shallow like superficial surfaces of the way they interact with the world and um Foucault does not really have a argument about what to do from here but what he does have is he has a lust for life and he has so <laughs> much passion and energy towards understanding this nightmare we've trapped ourselves in that You know, I feel like just in the act of explicating it and turning it into this, you know, masterpiece accomplishment, that is almost enough to make you feel like there is hope after all.
1: There was one part in this. I mean, it was kind of a very it was like one page of the book, but it said so much. And it was sort of like. I I mean, I'm I kind of made my own inferences from it, I guess, in a way. But it was sort of when he was talking about how the development of the Panopticon coincided with the development of, of the Industrial Revolution. And that they're basically linked together. The one couldn't have happened without the other. And it sort of was like, he basically makes the argument that you couldn't, we can't really go back from here. You know, that we've had, we've had all this industrialization happen because of the Panopticon. And you can't just remove this entire system in place without also removing this entire system that's also benefited everybody greatly. And it's sort Mm -hmm. of like, when I was reading that, it was like, that was the scariest part of the book to me (laughs) because it was basically him admitting that there's no going back from this, that we can only move forward.
0: That goes all the way back to the very beginning of uh, this season of I'm So Popular With, like my interest in futurism is that there's no going back now. We have Mm -hmm. to obliterate everything in um, a mad dash forward. And it is scary. Um, I don't really have any faith in anything like a revolution. Obviously, like yeah. no like, fucking internet <laughs> commie is going to do anything. Yeah. Revolution is an antiquated concept at this rate. But we just got to keep moving uh, in any direction we can. And doing it as uh, boisterously and full of life is Foucault did, because I just think about him in his youth when he was this, you know, sad sack, like, hated his dad, never left his room. But in comparison to his older life, after he had written all of these titanic pieces of world-changing philosophy, he was, like, the most jovial, sunny person, getting Mm -hmm. fucked up the ass every which way, um, and, uh, you know, if, for him to have seen so piercingly into the horror of mm-hmm. this this phenomenon, and then to still, like, live um, a, a really full life, well-lived. Yeah. People like to taunt him for the AIDS stuff, like you mentioned earlier. But I find it beautiful that he died of AIDS, actually. Because it means that he was alive. People wouldn't yeah. even go, fuck during COVID. Because they yeah. were so intense and you know, penal about how they wanted to censor and, like, modulate everyone's behavior. Yeah. They wouldn't even fuck during COVID. And the fact that he was able to, like, fuck during AIDS and squeeze his life for everything, it, it's very touching to me.
1: Yeah, and it also just showed his dedication to his own work. That, I mean, like, his his own sex life was basically an extension of his body of work. You know, the BDSM thing very much plays into everything with the book. And just the fact that he took life as it came to him, and you know, just experienced everything that he could, and just paid the system that he was writing about no attention whatsoever.
0: いい
1: あなた<笑>
0: feel as if the questions posed by Foucault in Discipline and Punish are thoroughly resolved in the fantastic Japanese television drama Jouyu no Kyoshetsu, which is The Queen's Classroom. Now, this is something that I think is one of the more, um, it's both one of the easiest things to recommend because it is Perfect. It is so thrilling and so tense and exciting and unlike anything you've ever seen. Um, But it is also very deeply Japanese. Um, (laughs) It was, (laughs) it is like so intensely Japanese that honestly it is a little alienating if you can't open your heart to it. But if you can, it is. If you can be brave enough to venture out of your own country's boring, tepid art, you will be graced with one of the most philosophically, like, pressing television series I've ever seen. It was released in 2005, and it is about um, a young girl, a 6th grade girl named Kanda Kazumi, Kanda-san, who, uh, as she goes into her 6th grade, she is greeted with a new teacher... Akutsu Maya, who is uh, basically one of the most intense and horrifying, like, filmic depictions <laughs> of a teacher or anyone. Um, and as she, this uh, devilish teacher, basically disciplines and tortures her class over the course of a year. Um, True realities are revealed about the nature of the world, and it leads to a beautiful and sublime, affirming view of life on Earth. Um, It is a lot of child acting that is surprisingly incredible, Um, lots of awkward um, Japanese-isms, children pissing themselves, Um, lots of like really deeply autistic like cringe but I'm telling you like this this is it this is the moment what was your general reaction to this series when I asked you to watch it
1: I I thought it was incredible and I I just really wanted to mention why you wanted me to do this was because I mentioned that when I was a kid growing up that I really wanted a Japanese woman to be president (laughs) (laughs) just a random thing that like as a little kid I would just think like you know, the world would be so much better if a Japanese woman was president. And this was, like, in a way, confirmed my theory. And it was so oh, much... Yeah. yeah. ...perfect that it was around... It's, what, 2005 is when this came out? Mm-hmm. So that's around the time where I would have even... They would have been uh, thinking about that. So it was just, like, it lined up so perfectly. And it was, like... I was so bright as a little kid. That's how, that's how I feel about it. But it's it's incredible. Like... Yep. Uh.
0: It is unlike anything uh, you have ever seen before. And your idea that a Japanese woman should be president is the right idea because uh, Japanese women are still actually subjugated in Japanese culture. They get the short stick of things, as is uh, (laughs) depicted really clearly here. But the thing is, is that they don't whine about it. Mm -hmm. They woman up, they take their position, and they squeeze it for all it's worth until Mm -hmm. they retire and become baddie like, bitches when they get older. (laughs) Like, Japanese... You'll walk around, like, Japan and see, like, the the babas, Mm -hmm. the the old women who are, like, in their 70s with, like, dyed blue hair, like, (laughs) being just the cuntiest bitches in the world. Um, And the figure of Maya... Maya-sensei, is uh, brilliantly played by Amami Yuki, and Amami Yuki got her start in Japanese media as a member of the Takarazuka Review, and the Takarazuka Review is an all-women's theater troupe um, that has women playing both the uh, the, the men's roles and the female roles, and her breakout role Um, was as Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind. And you can see that kind of masculine power Mm -hmm. in her performance. We'll get to some of the plot, but um, tell me what you thought and how you reacted to the presence of Maya, this evil teacher who is torturing the children throughout the course of the show.
1: I mean, it's so well played because it's like it's almost like you keep looking for something in her eyes to tell you that she's more than what she's letting on you know that she's more than just this evil teacher should i is it okay if i spoil anything oh of course yeah yeah but like you know for the entire run of the show we never see anything other than like this blank expression until we get to the you know the prequel episodes at the end but the whole show we're just staring at this woman and it's like there's this tiny little bit that the actress does where you're you're just grasping for something to find her humanity and it's like the whole. Time you're watching the show, even though she's being a horrible, horrible human being, you can't help but feel like there's more to this than I can tell. and then you get that beautiful shot before the pre you know the last episode of the actual original run, where the last part is you finally see her smile mm-hmm. and it's just like the most uplifting, like beautiful thing you could ever like see in your life is like going through this yes. whole show, waiting for that one moment to happen, and it finally happened, and you realize that like everything that you thought was true was actually what really was going on. And that, like, even though there's all this sick torture and everything of these children going on, that it really was all for a greater purpose.
0: She is so transfixing. Um, She dresses in this crazy BDSM outfit. It's, like, this um, long black dress, black stockings, and short black heels, and, like, these fucking, like, belt corset. <laughs> like, And her hair is, like, constantly tied all the way up. She's so cunted. And um, one of, like, the leading images of the show that reappears is just her walking down the hallway. And she is, like, this terrifying, like, female presence. And... She really gives one of the most shocking performances I've ever seen. Because, like you said, you never feel like you're being let in on the secret. It's always being, like, suggested that, like, something greater mm-hmm. is happening underneath the surface. But her face never becomes angry or ecstatic or sad. It has these, like, micro-movements. Her eyes just will, like, move a little bit as she only slightly raises her eyebrows. Mm-hmm. This performance is unlike anything I've ever seen before. It's
1: it's one of the best acting we I've ever seen. For
0: real. It cannot be overstated. Um, in the first episode, um, this little 6th grade girl, Kanda, is, like, so <laughs> annoying. She's, like, she is always going, teehee, and um, running. <laughs> the he is so, it's, like, ultra cringe.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <It's>, <laughs> um she is like running late she's like a little class clown and she wants like the fun like friendly teacher to be her homeroom teacher for sixth grade and when she sits down in the classroom she is greeted by maya who gives this monologue in which she says only six percent of the people in the world will become happy that means only one or two of you in this entire class will become happy The rest of you are going to burn out and fail and will never make a living for yourself properly and will be miserable for the rest of your lives. So if you don't take your studies seriously right now, I'm going to punish you. And the system that she puts into place is that she gives a really unfair test um, and whoever is the worst uh, has to uh, do the chores for the class and it generally becomes like the object of discrimination and bullying what did you kind of make of like this uh, Foucauldian uh, discipline that she was conducting in the classroom?
1: Uh, The whole time it's sort of like you, you understand how kind of horrible she's treating these children, but at the same time you also feel like the parents, you know, where every single thing she does has a very specific meaning and justification behind it. And at the end of the show, I mean, the show doesn't really say anything bad about what she really does. Like the end message of the show is just that she was right the whole time and that you just <laughs> have to deal with it and that if you are in a class with a teacher like this if you have something like this in your life you know and you know as we were talking about with Foucault that's everything now everything is run like this but if you have a system like this you just have to grab it by the balls and do what you can to be at the top
0: exactly and it's um pretty torturous like how um like bizarre and deep (laughs) the like ritual humiliation of the students goes she doesn't let them go to the bathroom so in like the first episode kanda pisses herself (laughs) on screen Uh... (laughs) japanese thing for sure um Mm -hmm. and then she basically (laughs) is able to buy like um implementing all of these, like, obtuse strategies of, like, making them, like, stay for summer break or, like, making them, like, clean certain things or, like, by, um, promoting certain students in the class rankings and giving certain students special favor, she is able to basically completely change the entire social makeup of the class until, like, uh, little Kanda is, like, being mercilessly, like, bullied and is, like, completely destitute by, like, episode four. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then I, I love that it, it doesn't just end there. That like that's only about halfway through the show that we have the first half of the show is just like we just watch Conda get mercilessly you know, mercilessly bullied increasingly. And then it just kind of escalates with her literally being thrown out of a window and being covered in glass <laughs> and blood and the teacher having to run and pick her up and clean her up and like fix her cuts and everything. And it's just like the whole time you're just thinking like oh it can't get any worse than this and then it always (laughs) it always does oh
0: yeah i was introduced to this um by my boyfriend rio when um I, i guess like uh i can't remember if it was like when i had covid or not but basically like it gets so like Every episode like reaches like new perilous levels mm. of horror, so that you don't think it can it can get like worse or more <laughs> intense, and then it does every it does episode. Every single episode. <laughs> and it's like, I don't see TV like this. Like everything is like so art house and like slow paced that like the incredibly like fast paced high mm-hmm. tension is like breakneck when you're watching this.
1: Yeah. And it's so oh, easy to just it. watch it really... I mean, I watched this pretty quickly because it's just... You just want to keep seeing where it's going to go.
0: Yeah, it's it's thrilling. Um, yeah. And it, the way that it's thrilling is really strange, too. It's very unique because um, when you kind of break down some of the, like the deepest moments of tension, basically what it amounts to is a bunch of 6th graders... Standing up in class and arguing with their teacher, um, but because of the music and because of this really flat like um, DSLR kind of camera, like this mm-hmm. digital camera that like blows everything out into flatness, and the dun 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 dun, <laughs> <laughs> it lends so much drama and intensity. Mm-hmm. The stylization of these Japanese dramas where it is completely unafraid to just reach into the deepest melodrama and do it without any ironic wink I live for it
1: to me the craziest part about the whole experience of watching this is that every single character on the show is so accurate to how an actual crap like classroom runs that like you just feel like you're a kid again watching it you feel like you're sitting down in your classroom and these are the people that you're you like look at different characters and you're like that was someone that i knew i knew someone that acted like this you know Mm -hmm. and it just gets into every single different kind of like just fucked up kid that you could be as a child
0: absolutely and i find it's like really delicate and and challenging to like make meaningful art about like Children of this age, because mm-hmm. it's such an awkward time. I remember when I was in sixth grade. I think that's when I started <laughs> masturbating. So like <laughs> that was like when th- things are going weird for me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and in the West, I think when children are depicted, it's with this like saccharine mm-hmm. lack of interiority and yeah. a lot of like safety. But because Japanese culture puts so much prominence on like the buildings, Roman and like the transformation of becoming a mature person yeah. in your youth and um, saying goodbye to your carefree days at a, a kind of a young age it takes like it, it really seriously and it the entrenchment it has like in the children's perspective towards Maya like mm-hmm. it it really does like you said it makes you feel that like you're at that age again it makes you feel like vulnerable and awkward and like pubescent it's so unique
1: it It really is. And it's like it's sort of as like every single character has a very well fleshed out psychology. And it's not even necessarily that they're good or bad. It's just honest. It's honest to how people actually act. And so, like, a character that I feel like we have to talk about is Baba Do you remember Baba Oh,
0: I remember Baba <laughs>
1: <laughs> I those kind like watching Baba Chan, it was like those are the kind of kids that I always fucking hated. Those are the people I would always get into arguments with and would always report me to the teacher. And it was just like, it was just crazy to see the transformation of that character because it was so honest to how people like that really are.
0: Yeah, the narrative arc of Baba Chan, the Baba Chan, like three episode <laughs> arc. <laughs> is like this very awkward shy academically unsuccessful girl gets propositioned by Maya sensei to um basically be her little rat and after um sweet little Kanda-san has been trying to help her out like the whole series um she stabs her in the back and reports everything to Maya sensei and for like four episodes like she's like a, a sub antagonist and mm-hmm. it is really touching that they don't, like, just leave her there, but they yeah. actually, like, let her change.
1: Yeah. And it was sort of just, like, the only reason she really changes is because she realizes that she has no friend, and that she needs friends, so she kind of just goes back to being how she was before. And everyone just quietly kind of accepts it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting to me. Like I said, there's a lot of emphasis in Japanese media about, like, this transformation of youth and like the moment you start taking responsibility for yourself, which is obviously mm-hmm. the thing the theme of things like Gundam and Evangelion. Mm-hmm. And um here it is really nice like seeing it in like a live action, like plain clothes format, because these like transformations and entrances into maturity that the characters take is uh it's very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh god, Baba chan. There's the, the <laughs> wallet stealing arc, um, when Kanda gets framed for uh, stealing a wallet by her friend Erika. Um, mm. <laughs> there is my favorite arc is Yusuke, the really annoying little boy who has a crush on Kanda, and they have mm-hmm. like a, a tense oh, yeah. friendship, and um, he has a faggot father. <laughs> His, yeah, his, oh, his grandfather
1: yeah his grandfather but his grandfather who wants him to call him grandmother
0: yes and he like <laughs> wears like um he does he's not like like full agp he just like wears like women's blouses and tight yeah. little pants and I, like i walks... i
1: love like when japanese media have like gay guys like that where they're like super effeminate but they're not they're not like supposed to be transgender or like genderqueer or anything they're just gay guys that wear women's clothing
0: yeah, it's so fierce. Um, yeah, I love that arc. And um, it's difficult to, like, summarize this because, like, the episodes are so jammed with plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what is really special about, like, this initial, like, run-up up to the, towards the finale of the original series is that, like, this really does, like, get, like, the the Foucault manner of things. Like, yeah. the horror of what's happening to them is the constant surveillance that, they um are turned to through literal discipline and punishment
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and it's interesting i mean the show never really explains how this happens but uh sensei basically has complete surveillance over all of the students at all times and she knows every single thing about all of them and she's kind of like a ghost and just will randomly appear at places seemingly you know out of nowhere yeah, when you were first
0: watching this, did you, like, think that she was, like, magical in some way? Because I was convinced yeah. for, like, the first five episodes that she was, like, literally, like, some, like, demonic entity.
1: No, it's that's exactly how it feels. And it reminded me of what Foucault was talking about with medieval, like, uh, detective work. Where it is sort of, like, you have no clue where the evidence is coming from. And it almost feels like the person, like, the judge that's sentencing you is, like, an adversary or, a, like, a like a representative of god himself you know because you have no idea where they're getting this information but they seem to know every single thing about you
0: yeah it's exactly like that and it is revealed in like the last episode of the show when maya starts fainting all the time (laughs) like it's revealed that the reason that she's like fainting and sick is because she's over exhausted from not sleeping because all she does is like haunt her like kids yeah. and is just, like <laughs> following them around yeah. all the
1: time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um.
0: At the end, towards the end of the show, um, things reach a boiling point. Conda has successfully re rallied um the the students and turned them against um Maya once more. And what she does is she basically compiles all their worst secrets and says, if you don't do what I say, I'm just going to tell your fucking parents about all the nightmarish stuff you've done to them Mm -hmm. and uh, all of your secrets and lies. And it's this big confrontation where uh, they're having jugyo sankan, which when I was a teacher, we had this, when... All of the parents, the helicopter parents, are standing in the back of the classroom while you have to teach. It is the most horrifying thing I've ever done in my entire life. Um, but when they are doing it, the children um, willingly apologize and tell their parents as a way to, like, try to get back at Maya. And you realize that all of this was her little plan all along. The whole time,
1: yeah. And I she love...
0: Was... Mm-hmm. Go ahead, I sorry. I was just
1: going to say, I loved... The, the like Japanese pantsuit moms, and the just the horde of pantsuit moms running into the building.
0: Yeah, the moms are so good in this series. Like, Kanda, mm-hmm. the protagonist, her mother has a whole arc of her husband uh, cheating on her because she's too much of a do-nothing, miserable helicopter <laughs> parent. Yeah. <laughs> she's so incompetent and annoying.
1: And I love that she just breaks plates constantly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she's constantly like breaking plates and like screaming and like yeah. being like
1: mo kanda-san
0: mo kazumi but yeah um it's it's revealed that the her philosophy towards teaching um is to create a wall of herself that her students must overcome and so she mercilessly bullies them and turns herself into um, an enormous challenge of hardship so that they can experience like true difficulty and thus come out the other end, stronger and more well-rounded people.
1: Mm-hmm. There was this Sartre quote that I I've heard once. I can't remember what it is exactly, but it was like he basically believed that like the only way to truly become friends with someone was to go through mutual torture with them. That's the that's entire exactly philosophy of hazing
0: is. and fraternities. <laughs> and it's true. Like yeah. and it's right and it's real and like mm-hmm. that act of being tortured and put up on the wheel and like slowly crucified is what like Foucault misses. Mm-hmm. Like he, yeah. Japanese torture to me has been a prominent theme of the season between all of like the um, like, pop stars and, like, idol groups and stuff I've talked about that have all been, like, ritually humiliated. But mm-hmm. the thing is, is that that torture and humiliation does make glistening experience. And I think Foucault mm-hmm. agrees with that, too. Like, actual yeah. physical, visible, present pain and torture is actually what can, like, lead to transcendence, Transcendence. Transcendentalism. Words. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, yeah, you're totally right, and I, I just, it's such a, it's a really empowering message, honestly.
0: It is, and it's beautiful. The mm-hmm. very last um, scene of them when they are finally like saying goodbye mm-hmm. um, to Maya. Maya gets fired basically and is sent to the uh, teacher reeducation <laughs> center. <laughs> which is like this ominous like hell that they keep like alluding to throughout the show um but basically because of her actions despite the protests of the reformed children who have come to love her um she's ultimately sent to it and they do this like weeping screaming song for her where Mm -hmm. they're like it's so beautiful
1: i literally had tears at that part I, i i'm serious and it was just like Just the emotion of everything, but also the fact that they they had this whole part where they were talking about how they had to stop playing that song because it was seen as, like, too sentimental towards the teachers. And that no one actually cares about their teachers to that degree, so they just don't play that song anymore. And so Mm -hmm. somehow all the kids just know the words and are just sitting there crying their eyes out at the teacher. And it was just, like, such a beautiful touching moment. like, Like, this is how the world used to be. You know it's kind of like the implication that this is how everyone felt towards their teachers you know i don't necessarily say that that's like true or whatever but that's like if that kind of Foucault idea about the past is kind of implied there that it's like through the torture they've come to love each other and the you know the person that was torturing them
0: <laughs> can you picture
1: it like oh <laughs>
0: I think this is honestly one of the most, like, reactionary and conservative, oh, um, like, pieces of pop art I've, I've like, ever seen. Oh, it's, like, shocking, sure. like, it how, is. yeah, it's not fucking around. Like, this is, like, real conservatism, like conservatism.
1: And it's not, like, hiding it at all. It's just just straight out open with every single thing that is conservative about it. It's open
0: from the first episode, yeah. and then the next ten episodes of the show is just the point getting slowly proven back to you. Yeah, and it's really refreshing to see a philosophical mission like what she outlines in the first episode during that speech, like um, so thoroughly like f- fleshed out and like given weight. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of her just telling you the theme of the show. In the first episode and then the rest of it is just slowly proving it right which I feel like <laughs> is' like my podcast as well
1: uh, and I love um, how there... like I love how in the prequels they they show her as an NF teacher mm-hmm. and sort of show how if everything that everything that went wrong in those classroom classrooms would have just been solved by her doing what she ends up doing in the earlier episodes of the show
0: mm-hmm um, there's I, I'm very excited to talk about the specials because they are fucking crazy. But yeah, um, yeah. there there is there is one quote that I kind of feel like gives the whole series and Foucault kind of its its necessary answer. And it's when um basically in front of the uh kun Kai what's that word? Kyo-in-kun- Board of Education, got it. When they had the Board of Education person observing Maya's class, like, ready to indict her, um, Maya says, like, uh, basically, this is uh, what the meaning of all this is. The reason that you study is so that you can maintain a curiosity about life. Because the second that you abandon your curiosity is the moment you are disqualified as a human being. And she says, we're surrounded by many beautiful things. As you gaze at ordinary scenery there will be many sudden surprises as time flows open your eyes and gaze at these important things and feel them with your entire body Oh my god
1: uh, uh.
0: <laughs> oh, That is my 100% philosophy that I know. she pairs it with this like Foucaultian torture it's like yeah. I was it was shook. insane When I first saw it with my boyfriend, I was, like, shaking and, like, in tears. And he was like, oh, I didn't really expect you to react this way to it. I'm like, someone has said what I have been trying to say my entire life so succinctly and powerfully. It, like, rocks the soul.
1: That's exactly how I felt with it. It was just, like, seeing everything that I had felt throughout my life just sort of put on a screen and said in such a beautiful, just honest way. Without any kind of, like, pretense just just straight up saying it
0: as you gaze at ordinary scenery there will be many sudden surprises as time flows (laughs) oh i am right there i'm right Uh there right now this is why we have got to give up on western art honestly it is over Okay, Mm -hmm. like, everything is, like, in its Aljaic stage. Like, we are mourning the death of media. That Mm -hmm. has been the case since Inland Empire. And if the (laughs) most successful movies out of last year, Blonde and Tar, are to say anything, Tar is, uh, you know, completely, like, downtrodden and, like, uh, beat up by the system and calling attention to it. And mm-hmm. Blonde, like Inland Empire, is a death statement of the medium and mm-hmm. a decrying statement of what it means to be an image. It is time to abandon Western media. Mm-hmm. Let let it go. It's over. Japanese art is the only thing that is saying anything true. And it still is saying it. Like, I just fucking saw Shin Kamen Rider, a superhero blockbuster movie. And it has themes more complicated and more life-affirming than anything out of the West. And... I don't want to hear any whining about weird Japanese culturalism or, like, cringe or weeaboos or any of that nonsense because this is philosophically truer than anything you or any of the artists you, like, will ever say. Word. (laughs) Word. Yeah. Let's talk about the specials because the specials, (laughs) like... If you think that the first 11 episodes are crazy, about a year later, they release these specials that um, they take place about a year after um, the events of the original series as Maya is going through her teacher re-education. Konda and Yusuke are going through their little problems as they are now junior high school students. And as she goes through these torturous, very, like, Foucauldian, like, exercise discipline uh, rituals to earn her teaching credentials back, she reflects on her past. It is the most shocking soap opera melodrama that reaches, like, existential <laughs> cosmic levels of absurdity and darkness that are uh. so unexpected.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do you honestly... about the specials? I I I mean it's just like they took everything that was insane about the original show and then just amped it up to 11 somehow even though every Literally. single episode you think it can't get any more crazy they somehow like took took it to just a completely different level like I'm serious like the second special is just like it's like end of evangelion levels of just insanity yeah,
0: it's literally the end of Evangelion, and I told you that and it's true. It's like yeah. this like feels like the the perfect statement that like recontextualizes everything and uh spins it into the void. Um we see Maya Sensei in the first as a, a teacher who just wants to be liked, uh, much like one of the characters in the original um run of the show, and she is completely incompetent and I don't know about you, but some of the most, like, torturous, like, painful parts of the show is just, like, watching her flop and, like, completely be unable to manage her classroom and just, like, getting raked Mm -hmm. across the coals by these kids. It was so brutal.
1: I, I come from basically a family of teachers, and so, like, seeing it actually, like, portrayed as, like, that, it was just really brutal. Because so much of it is true. And it's just, like, you see those really... Woman who's basically forced to become something else by the system. Mm-hmm.
0: It's exactly that. It's um. I think that the the phrase that they use when they're introducing um the the specials is this is the story of a teacher filled with love and ideals who was reborn as a devilish <laughs> teacher. <laughs> the story of many years. <laughs> like um. <laughs> Um in the her first teaching gig um she uh latches on to uh one student uh who when she wants to be liked uh by everyone and it's like this demonic lesbian oh, like alien God. girl who yeah. um starts like uh like self mutilating and like attempting suicide so she can blame it on Maya <laughs> yeah and yeah. it gets so bad that she eventually has to to quit but that leads to her getting married to her husband and becoming a housewife and i <laughs> I, I just know what i'm about to say yeah um she has a 7-year-old boy named show who she like really dotes upon and is kind of like a helicopter parent too um and uh one day show fucking drowns in a river
1: yeah and then basically the next shot is her husband Telling her that she's the reason it happened.
0: Yeah. Were <laughs> you not like just like jaw, like aghast? Like, just like when she is like clutching her son in uh. the river, screaming.
1: Yeah. And like the way that they did the makeup and everything on the kid, it was just so perfect. Like, he just looks like a dead child. <laughs> and but it's like yeah. shot on like this like camcorder almost. So it just makes it look even more real. Like it looks like you found some random woman. It's just really brutal. <laughs> it's like, it's so
0: intense. Actually, like I took a bunch of screenshots of um this like river sequence because mm-hmm. it, I have never like seen anything that feels like as like Samuel Beckett Endgame. Like it feels like she's like on mars or like some like dante circle of hell like in this like dirty muddy river like uh, i can't like even register like how like shocking this image is it's so crazy
1: especially when this is a character that we've you know we haven't seen this character ever this entire run of the show and it's really the only time it ever comes up is this one like scene with her just screaming about losing her son
0: Yeah, um, she divorces her husband um, and um, she's completely, she walks back into the river like Sylvia Plath, like keen on killing herself. But she gets a call from that crazy bitch who uh, was responsible for her quitting, um, who says she's going to kill herself um, because she's pregnant, doesn't know what to do with her life. Uh, Maya basically like saves her and uh, they... She decides to renew herself as a serious teacher, unafraid to discipline her students and change their lives, and that leads us into the end of Evangelion's second special.
1: (laughs) I just (laughs) now this is
0: fucked up. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I just wanted to mention the part where she tells her that she has to get an abortion. Like she just and then she gets it, (laughs) and she gets it with her. If she's sitting <laughs> in the hospital bed next to her. Like, that was just another part where it just goes, like, even more insane than you ever thought it possibly could.
0: Yeah, it gets, like, like, into abortion, like, child death, like, mud horror. Yeah. Oh, this second special is one of my favorite things I've ever seen. It is, like, Battle Royale. It is, like, a very tense confrontation. Um, she joins a new class uh, that has already gone through two teachers because Eiji-kun, this (laughs) menacing 13-year-old boy who has been held back due to a heart condition, is running the entire class. He is, with a winking smile, uh, forcing students to attempt suicide, mercilessly bullying them in some scenes that are actually like deeply horrific to watch.
1: Oh god, yeah. Yeah, this where they take
0: his pants off and are like, "Oh my god!"
1: And the, like, yeah, just it's it's just such a honest portrayal of, of how bullying could actually get in a way that's not really ever done in the United States, mostly just for legal reasons. Like, I don't think you could legally even have things like this in a show over here.
0: I have no idea, and I'm sure that any like fucking hoity-toity, like, right-winger would, like, want to have, like, a panic attack yeah. about this. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, it is really visceral. They're, they're basically targeting one student in particular, mm-hmm. um, Eiji and the entire class. And, um, his father is a, a member of the Japanese Diet, the, uh, basically the parliament they have here. And so he gets away with all of it. And, uh, it's all conducted very closely behind, uh, closed doors. And the more that Maya, um, kind of succeeds as a teacher and starts standing up for herself, uh, the, uh, more hellish he begins to make this, uh, boy's life, um, mm-hmm. until it all results in, uh, her confronting him. And he uses all of the same lines that Maya uses in the first episode of the show. He says, my father said only about 2% of people are going to be happy in this world. Um, I can get anything I want because I'm privileged and I have no respect for anyone else. And Maya realizes that this is, like, Satan incarnate. And mm-hmm. you you come to realize that she embodies him in her next uh, teaching yeah. position because she realizes this is, like, the pit of true evil.
1: And she realizes that, like, once she's finally, like, conquered him, you know, in a way that she's realized there's nothing more that could be done. Like, she has fulfilled her life's mission just by figuring out how to deal with this demon child, which is why she <laughs> embodies it with her teaching position because she realizes that if she can be the wall that the other kids can take down, that they they will be set for life, that they there's nothing more that they can accomplish because they will have dealt um, with, like, pure evil.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, literal pure evil. Now, I keep hyping up, like, how bonkers and out of this world this gets, but there is a scene in which Ag tries to kill Maya. Like, this little 13-year-old boy tries to murder her in cold blood, and it
1: is so
0: violent. I know. <laughs> he like when he like bashes her knees in with a baseball bat Ugh. he chokes her out he slashes her with a paper cutter um they're like bleeding and like spitting all over each other have you ever seen anything like this in your entire life
1: the only thing i could compare it to is end of, as end of evangelion because it's just that level of brutality but it's also just like in this case it just is so like the way it's shot is like it's so. It's so undramatic about it. It's just mm-hmm. shot very matter of fact, as if you just kind of stumbled in on this going on in the closet, you know, and that just makes it seem even more just disturbing.
0: Oh yeah, it's it's like this dark lighting with like one light, and when mm-hmm. like they're like choking each other out, Ugh. you you never see children brutalized in Western TV, no. but he's like. He's like cut up and like spitting out blood, and his like eyes are like bulging out of his head as he, as she's choking him.
1: It's so. And, and then she's saying like, "What was it?" It's like, "Now do you see why it's not? It, why do you now do you see why it's not okay to kill people?" And then she's like, "Right before death is brutal pain, torture, while she's strangling a child." <laughs>
0: All you want to do is cry out for your family. Um, and if this is, of course, because uh, A.G.'s kind of philosophy is that why does it matter if I... It doesn't matter if I kill people or not. Why does it matter? Why is it wrong? And uh, this is why he's, like, led multiple children into attempting suicide, which we also see. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. But and it's, then it's they basically recreate the, the scene of her son drowning. But it's with and another kid. she saves kid. the... Yeah, Yeah. she saves
0: him. Yeah, just because they can't, like, make this more... They can't make it any less melodramatic. It has to reach into the abyss. Um, But, yeah, by the end of the series, Maya has become a fully fleshed person. She has to go to the teacher's re-education camp for the first time and is reborn as as the satanic wall that she makes herself in in the original run of the series. But I... Love that I got to talk about this with you, and I really feel like Foucault's understanding of the classroom as, like, the engendering of a prison and, mm-hmm. like, the the beginning of a, a panopticon, which you'll never be able to escape, this regimented life, um, I really find the Queen's Classroom to be a beautiful effulgent piece of art for saying actually life is beautiful you have to open your eyes and see all of the surprising wonders around you every day and you have to turn yourself into these walls and overcome the people who are walls so that you can become a real fully realized person in the most reactionary sense of the phrase
1: it's so that's such a beautiful way to put it and that it's like even despite everything that Foucault talks about with the Panopticon and everything, there's still a meaning to life and there's still something to look to.
0: Absolutely. And we're coming up on uh, the advent of my new universe. The season three uh, of my show is reaching its end here in the next month or two. So now more than ever, this really counts by you, but... What are we to take from Queen's Classroom and Discipline and Punish? What are we to take philosophically from this into my new world?
1: Hmm. I guess just that, you know, <clears throat> like I said a little bit, um, basically kind of like what I was saying that, you know, the state of humanity is, is torturous, but it's also beautiful and you have to figure out how to tor- turn your torture into something meaningful in and of itself <laughs>